You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is part one of M Relay's Aging, Ableism and Architecture Talk, where a round of designers, professionals and activists come together to talk about the opportunities and pitfalls when working to make our cities more accessible. Hi everyone, welcome to M Pavilion and um, welcome to the second in a four-part series of M Relays, which are quite a, an unusual and fantastic way to engage in a provocative conversation um, around um, a number of um, particularly relevant themes to the changing nature of our cities. Um, today, the themes ageing, ableism and architecture. My name is um, Alan Pert and I'm director up at the Melbourne School of Design. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we meet, um, the land of the Yolo, Kut, Wulam, um, who are part of the Boon and pay respect to their families and to their elders, past, present, and to the future. So, as part of our M Relay, we've gathered 10 quite incredible voices. Um, it's a collection of education, um, individuals, activism, art, architecture, programming, production, clinical care, and design practice. In the spirit of creative conversation and idea generation, um, which is the heart of M Pavilion's agenda, what we really hope to hear today um, are some predictions, some proposals, and hopefully possibilities and visions to inspire ideas for how we might want to live in a future Melbourne. With today's talks, we hope to prompt a wider discussion of the ways in which demographic shifts and societal changes will intersect with the planning, design, and experience of the built environment, a variety of scales, from the scale of the body, to the home, to the city, and to the wider society. Now, my role is fairly simple today. I'm hosting. Um, I'm going to start to kick off the conversation. But um, the lead up to today's event, a friend back in the UK um, sent me a, a note to remind me that next week is the 10-year anniversary of the launch of the Centre for Community Practice, an organisation I helped to found back in the UK. It was a partnership between a community trust, um, my architecture practice back then, and a university. And interestingly, 10 years down the line, he sent me my speech from the, the launch of the centre. And I thought it might be quite an interesting thing to read out just a couple of short paragraphs from that talk, which 10 years on is still very relevant to a future, for a different context. It was called Inclusion by Design, and it said the quality of buildings and spaces has a strong influence on the quality of people's lives. Decisions about the design, planning, and management of places can enhance or restrict a sense of belonging. They can increase or reduce feelings of security, stretch or limit boundaries, promote or reduce mobility, and improve or damage health. They can remove real and imagined barriers between communities and foster understanding and generosity of spirit. So even though accessibility and conversations around accessibility have improved over the last decade, and planning policy has shifted with investment providing new facilities to once excluded communities, the fact still remains that poor and disadvantaged people are far more likely to live in poor quality environments and experience a poorer quality of life. Social, cultural and economic inequalities are still being literally built into new places. And planners, politicians and importantly designers need to examine more closely the impact of their decisions. Now, the Centre for Community Practice was established 10 years ago in the UK and is still alive and very well today. And it was established following a naive decision to close a community swimming pool. It was a decision that had drastic consequences. The paradox and contradiction was that the planning policy launched six months prior to the closure of the building had the word inclusion stated 43 times in its policy. So these contradictions um, and complexities are something we really hope to start to unpick today. And um, given we're coming to a state election, I thought it might be quite interesting to consider that with our first speaker, Jax, um, I'm encouraging her to adopt the role of the planning minister. So I'm considering we await, we awake on Sunday the 25th 
in the morning to find out that Jax has been appointed planning minister for the state of Victoria. Um, and I think it'd be good to start the conversation by considering what Jax might do to revolutionise and change um, the cultural context of Melbourne. Good morning, thank you. I'm um, in my first official address as planning minister. I would like to draw your attention to my t-shirt, um, which is a disability activist slogan from the UK, uh, particularly around challenging notions of people with disabilities being objects of charity, um, and instead wanting governments to start to think about the ways in which they need to provide services for people with disabilities instead of getting us to rely on the kindness of strangers. Um, so, with that in mind, I would like to um, radically overhaul uh, the City of Melbourne's um, infrastructure, particularly looking at um, the number of accessible trams that dot this city and um, create a key way that the public um, is able to access this city. You may have noticed that there is accessible trams running across this city. Yes, there definitely is, but there's very few and a lot of the stops are not accessible which means that people like myself find uh, ourselves in these predicaments where we might jump on an accessible tram in the CBD um, and then go to Fitzroy, for instance, um, because I want to be a hipster, um, and find that we can't get off. So I've been in the situation where I've, I've jumped on my accessible tram um, and then I've realised there's no super stops, so there's no level stops with the tram and I actually can't disembark. So I've leapt into the arms of some unsuspecting man, which is a bit of a shock for him and me, because who knew? Um, and said, hey, darling, will you escort me off this tram? Um, and thankfully for me, you know, with my current chair and my current level of mobility, I'm able to leap at unsuspecting men in an emergency. But there's a lot of people with uh, different impairments and different kinds of bodies and minds that may not be able to do that and will not choose to do that either. Um, so I really think we need to start to think about the principles of universal design. And there's seven principles to that, and I won't go through them all today. But one of them is to get us to think about equitable use. So how do we design spaces so that all bodies and minds can use those spaces equally? Still we see a world in which the way that design occurs is with a white, able-bodied, cisgendered man as the default, as the body that we think of when we think of designing spaces. And then if we think about anyone else outside of that, if we think about access, that's an add-on. So that's a thing that should be, you know, provided as an afterthought, provided as an extra special thing that often people have to advocate really hard for. And often people have to, you know, go in the back door or the side entrance or press a special buzzer, uh, make a special phone call to even ensure that they can get into buildings. Um, so I think we need to think really hard about who are we thinking about and who are we not thinking about when we continue to design spaces. So I really um, pointed an example in my mind this morning before I took this press conference um, and came here today was to notice the way in the space has been set up today. So previously, when I've come to the M Pavilion to speak and to attend events, um, most of you probably haven't even noticed, but if you go that way out there, there's a nice little curb cut. Now, that never used to be there. So for me, as a wheelchair user, I had to try and chuck a really awkward wheelie and hope that I had a good enough balance to get up to actually get into this space. Now, finally, there's been provided an accessible entrance for me, but that's only a very recent thing. Um, also, um, there's a prize centre being built in this city, which is fabulous and amazing, and I really look forward to being part of that. But um, the architects who've been involved in uh, planning that uh, monumental and really important building have decided to have a staircase as the central feature when you open those doors and walk through that space. Now, a number of people in the disability community, myself and many others with different kind of impairments who are not just wheelchair users, have said a staircase as a central feature actually says to a lot of people with disabilities, you're not welcome here, this space isn't for you. And not only that, but the Pride Centre decided that that staircase was going to be a meeting place. So the stairs were going to be uneven and people could sit on the stairs and kind of meet and talk to each other and um, connect and, you know, share their pride. 
Um, and a lot of us said, well, actually, we're excluded from that conversation by the very nature of that staircase being not only a staircase, but a space in which um, you can connect to other people. Um, so their solution to that has been to have a special mezzanine area that if you have access requirements, you can access via a lift. Um, but of course, that's again, special access for special people and it makes a lot of people with disabilities feel very excluded and othered and as though we're an afterthought in, in new buildings, in new spaces that are meant to be really forward thinking and thinking about you know, all types of bodies and minds. Um, so I would, I would say that there is a lot that needs to be done. And one of the key things, one of the key ideas I think that I would like to share with you if you haven't heard of it before, is this thing called the social model of disability, which says that a lot of the barriers people with disabilities face are because society is inaccessible. So things like the inaccessible trams that I mentioned, um, things like buildings being inaccessible, but also people's attitudes and ideas about disability which they mightn't always be aware of, but their stereotypes and ideas that we see in the media that disability is a terrible tragedy, or that people with disabilities are inspirational for doing nothing inspirational at all. Like, I get people following me around when I'm going to buy my groceries at Woolies and kind of coming up to me and going, you know, you're so amazing. And I'm like, I'm just buying a goddamn cucumber. <laughs> um, so it's this idea that, that people with disabilities must live these sad, tragic lives and that, you know, we are there to inspire non-disabled people to get up off the couch. Where, in fact, a lot of the barriers that I face are because society has been built with an able body in mind. Um, so, so I think that those are kind of the key ideas that I would like to begin my revolution with um, in, in terms of how do we shift people's thinking? How do we get people to actually put themselves... Uh, in the bodies and minds of people other than the current bodies and minds they might inhabit and start to think about what would it be like to navigate the world in that way? What barriers would you encounter and how could we really shift that? Um, and finally in my address, I'd like to say that um, I think one of the key ways that we do that is to really make sure that we have diversity represented in all levels of government. You know, we need to kick out a lot of the boring old white men who hold these really conservative ideas, who get about in these kind of bodies that inhabit privilege and don't even see all the barriers that everyone else is encountering. Um, so we really need to get the diversity of our communities um, represented in politics and unashamedly start to advocate for these much needed changes. Um, and I'd like to finally conclude by saying I am not gonna run for politics, it's definitely not my thing. <laughs> Uh, I'm an activist, I'm happily living on the fringes and shouting at the centre and sometimes getting paid to do so. Um, so, yes, thank you. Jack's just, we've probably got a couple of minutes before we invite Jane up, but, um, I mean, we're obviously starting to face a very, very particular demographic shift. So, Melbourne in particular has got a, the looming um, issue of the population increasing, doubling potentially in the next you know, 30 to 40 years, which is frightening when you consider issues of public transport um, and, and housing, um, and just generally access um, around the city. But there is this, uh, this demographic shift in terms of the aging population as well, which is gonna have an acute, I mean, I don't think we're, we're anywhere near um, having the, the right conversations around that and the implications it'll have for the physical environment. I was just wondering if you had any um, insight that, or, or predictions about that future. Yeah. yeah, well, I think one of the interesting things that I like to begin a lot of my um, talks on disability rights with is to remind people that you're all only temporarily able-bodied. If you're lucky enough to live long enough and live into old age, you'll all acquire some kind of impairment. We know that 90% of people acquire an impairment um, as they age. So it's an experience, disability is an experience that many people will have and will have at different points in their lifetime as they go in and out of, of um, their changing bodies and minds. So I think the ageing population is a really interesting thing to really start to think about. How, what happens when so many people start to have impairments? 
I know, for instance, I even I've been in Melbourne for six years now, and even in that short amount of time, um, I've seen so many more older people out and about on their scooters, which is fabulous and great. But um, you know, people who use scooters and wheelchairs, we can only get onto the first carriage of a train. Um, we can't get onto any of the other carriages because the platform's inaccessible, and we need a special ramp brought out for us. And so we end up in this really interesting space where we're all crammed in there. Um, and we've got a lot of these older drivers who are driving their scooters maybe for the first time, trying to reverse and go forward and get off these tiny ramps. Um, and, I mean, it's great. I'm not advocating that um, p people shouldn't be out doing all that. But I think the fact that we're all kind of stuck in this one carriage together trying to, um, trying to navigate a very small and confined space really speaks to the fact that we're not thinking about the... the, the the ageing population as a, as a big population that will be experiencing disability and will need greater access. Thanks, Jax. Now, I think just in the spirit of keeping the conversation moving, we're going to invite Jane um, from Sibling, Jane Cott, to come, come up and join the conversation. Um, and it's an opportunity for Jax to, to start to interrogate um, <laughs> and ask you some questions. So, Jane, please join us. Now, I'm going to just start by... I had a benefit of, um, I know some of siblings work, if for anyone that doesn't know, sibling are a, a young collective um, of architects, designers, um, graphic designers, um, um, who recently had an exhibition up at RMIT University um, looking at the whole issue of the aging population and intergenerational living. It was a fantastic provocation um, to start to think about potentially the ways we might inhabit the built environment. So. It's, I'm hoping that's something you might touch on, but I'm going to pass it over to Jax to start, start the conversation off. Hello. Um, yeah, I guess that I, get, I looked you up um, last night, actually, and I guess that was one of the key things that I really wanted to find out, particularly about that project. Um, so if you could tell us a bit more, that would be great. Okay. Um, if you don't mind, I might give the project some background, yeah, um, sure. so how we kind of came to it. As Alan said, we're a large collective of diverse design disciplines and one of, I think we've got a, uh, but mainly architecture, but we've got a very broad approach to practicing architecture. Um, two of our members have been the editor of Volume magazine in the Netherlands, which is run by Rem Koolhaas's design studio and I guess each issue investigates a societal issue like ageing, for example, or the architecture of peace. Um, in this, yeah, very highly researched way. So we brought some of that culture to our practice. Um, and normally the research preoccupations that we have are around how societal and cultural shifts are changing the spaces that we live in and also the sort of technological changes as well because I guess the way that those spaces change inevitably affects the way we interact with each other. And I guess as we become a more individualistic society, social connection becomes more and more important. So that's kind of where our prerogative comes from. Um, and I think we got into universal access in a big way through a client of ours called Michelle French and Associates. She's an occupational health and safety, um, sorry, she's an occupational therapist, but she works as an expert witness um, in the legal sphere. So she'll assess people who have um, been affected by uh, accidents and experienced physical change, um, and she'll prescribe what they need to do to modify their lifestyle to make it workable for them. Um, moving forward so she she gets down to the nitty-gritty like um, working with builders to modify people's homes or designing wheelchairs etc etc but I guess talking to her it just became really clear that um, those kind of design decisions are always an afterthought there's no <laughs> it's always like this bolt-on stainless steel vandal proof <laughs> kind of quite brutal response um, and she, yeah, I guess in conversation with her, she just said there is such an opportunity to deal with um, different types of bodies from a design perspective, which we're really and, excited about. And to make about. it beautiful and to yeah. make it intriguing and to make it a site of, you know, to make people want to kind of look at that, whatever that um, disability access or access point is. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've been I've been uh, investigating the work of Liz Jackson, and she's a UK disability advocate, um, and she looks at design as well. And she said when she acquired her impairment, um, she wanted a, a walking cane that that was you know interesting and and added to her um, you know her look um, and her and her aesthetic. She didn't want something that looked like it came out of a hospital, and it was really really hard to find that. And she had to start designing that. And I know for many people who use mobility devices you know we have to get these things that that aren't that don't fit our personalities that don't fit the way that we want to look in the world yeah yeah so we were super lucky because michelle then commissioned us to design a complete household full of furniture and her house um, doubles as her workplace so we were designing for all of her clients as well who are largely wheelchair um, users um so, and then her house as well. She's got lots of friends, obviously, in a similar situation. So, I guess, yeah, we just started looking at that real human scale of, of how to deal with wheelchairs. So, just simple things like tables having central um, central structure rather than peripheral structure. <laughs> um, we designed this sort of pizza couch. So, each wedge of the pizza was on wheels and you could move it out so that um, people could just wheel into the group. Or And we, we also integrated these very stylish pink sort of pool bars into the couch so that people could draw themselves up on. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a really nice project and it really opened our eyes to designing from that perspective. And I guess, um, yeah, we then, in terms of the show that we just had at RMIT Design Hub, am I waffling? No, okay. Um, we we uh, went for a grant with Creative Victoria to look at agency um, in the in the ageing city um, because we we feel that similarly with ageing, a lot of devices or contraptions or ways of amending people's houses for, for independent living are similarly undesigned. It would actually be amazing to catalogue all of the DIY. Jane, can I, obviously again, get back to the exhibition, given I've got a bit of an insight into the practice. Yeah. It's probably worth telling everyone that you all lived together in a, in a warehouse at one point, um, which, which I'm sure was not as easy as it probably sounds. Um, but you worked and lived in the same space with your colleagues, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> we wanted to fold our work practice with our social lives and um, our domestic spaces. I guess it was a reaction against corporatized architecture. We felt that discussions, uh, probably political discussions even, are, are more relevant around a kitchen table than a boardroom table. Um, and... I think because we've got that experience of yeah trying to work through consensus with a large group of people, I guess the premise of the show that we put on, it was so hard to, to work out exactly where we wanted to take the idea of ageing and built space, but in the end we looked at the premise of housing ownership as it becomes less and less available to younger generations. Um, that's going to mean that they in turn have less... Um, they're, they're unable to sort of um, cash in their house for quality aged care. So we were looking at ownership models that were more along a co-housing model, but then I guess setting up structures for people to live in um, that, in that sort of very inherently care oriented as well. So we kind of had three high level typography typologies that we were um, researching um, that don't seem to happen in Australia but do happen overseas, so high-density multi-generational living where there's a sort of inherent um, support system that happens between the infant and the elderly generations. Uh, we were looking at uh, co-housing, uh, logical family co-housing models where people who share a strong cultural... Um, or even religious belief might come together to support each other in later years. Uh, and then maybe a, a system based, coming out of the grey nomad culture, which was maybe a, a more dispersed support network across remote areas of Australia. So, so what is that, like, for the intergenerational model, for instance, 
what does that look like in terms of the structure, the built structure of a space? Um, well, <laughs> we're still working through <laughs> these things. But, um, yeah, Melbourne is densifying. So, we. I mean, I think a lot of... One of the reasons why it hasn't happened in Australia is because we haven't had had high density issues, whereas it does happen in a lot of pl other places in Europe, etc. Um, I think it is an incredibly cumbersome financial model, which I think that that the actual getting the financial model to work is actually the biggest issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, in a utopian world, I think it would be just creating spaces that are easily moderated across a person's lifespan. So you might be born there and be part of a family um, and then maybe it turns into a share house and then, I don't know. I mean, if we're going to live to 100, that family unit idea, if it even exists still, is actually probably only relevant for 20% of your life anyway. <laughs> so the, just so I'm clear, the model's not saying that um, you have like a grandchild and then an older person living in the same space at the same time and you're planning what that house, for instance, might look like to cater for, a, you know, an eight-month-old who's crawling about and getting into everything and and an older person who needs different modifications to be able to shower independently and that kind of stuff. Yeah. To be to be honest, we haven't gotten down to that level of okay. detail yet. That's We've sort of done the first stage where we're just trying to ascertain whether or not something like that would be embraced by the... Austra by, by the but it's a, that's an interesting point because there's, yeah. there's like examples in Europe of um, aged care facilities being combined now with um, yeah. learni early learning. Mm. Um, so you're getting those two extremes, those polar um, um, demographics coming together. And there's some fascinating research around that in terms of different building typologies that, that are emerging. Mm. Yeah, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully that does, even if it's not necessarily a living environment, but maybe just a, even a care environment, that would be really good to see happen here. Okay, well, now we're going to have a swap here on the panel. So can everyone join me in thanking Jax for a contribution? And... And we're going to invite Celeste um, Carnegie. Um, you could come up and join us. Um, so Celeste is from the, um, the STEAM program producer at Museum of, of Applied Arts and Sciences. Um, and you come up and share in a conversation now with Jane. Biggest mob today. <laughs> Are true these chairs? Oh, okay. <laughs> My big self can't even fit on it. Oh, hey. <laughs> so, Jane, we're going to hand over to you to yeah. pick off the conversation with Celeste. Yeah. Hi, Celeste. Hi. Nice to see you. <laughs> um, so the Museum of Applied Arts and Science, uh, Sciences yeah. for us Melbourne folk is actually the umbrella organisation of the Powerhouse Museum yeah. and the Observatory. So, we, yeah, we have three different... We have three sites under the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. It's the Powerhouse Museum, uh, the Sydney Observatory on the hill, and then we also have the Museum Discovery Centre out at Castle Hill, which is basically one big storage unit um, where you can go in and, and, and look at everything. So, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk, talk us through um, some of the programs that you've maybe put in place? Or, yeah, the type of... Yeah, so I'm currently... Um, so I'll just set the context. So I'm the Indigenous STEAM program producer at the, at the museum. Um, it's a new role and it's... Um, based on this pilot project that I'm working on um, called Agrobots. And basically what that is is just um, we're connecting agricultural robotics and uh, traditional Indigenous land management systems and environmental sciences. Um, so we're looking at 
So we work with uh, University of Sydney's Australian Centre for Field Robotics and their engineers. Um, and they have a whole uh, series of agricultural robots um, used for crops, um, identifying crops and weeds and different attachments that can spray pesticides or, you know, water them or pull out the weed if they need to. So um, it's been a, a learning process, um, especially for me, uh, because I've had to go back and learn about my culture and things that, um, that have been there for over 80,000 years, but I'm only starting to learn them now. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's an interesting project. <laughs> yeah, is Bruce Pascoe involved in Yes, yeah, so he's our Aldrin residence at the museum um, and he overlooks the project as well. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite high level. Do you have sort of public programs as well in the museum? Or oh, there's, more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's hundreds of public programs at the museum there. Um, Indigenous programming is still, is still on its way up. We're a small team. Um, basically just me and my boss. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, wherever possible, we try and get th that um, that engagement in. Yeah. I was reading about how you got into technology, yes. uh, helping your mum out, which I thought <laughs> was a nice segue from the multi-generational living. But, um, yeah, I guess, do you see a role in technology across the generations or...? Uh, definitely, um, because I advocate for Indigenous young people and women in STEM. So it's 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 interesting, and I have to remind people that Indigenous sciences and tech—they're just—it's just science and technology. It's it, we're just part of it, um, and now we're just relearning that, that those problem solvings and that technology and science with new tools. That's all it is. So um, it's about capability building. Um, and it's also about that intergenerational learning as well. Um, in, our, in our communities, we always endeavour to, to have the generations uh, learning together. Because um, it's so much more about the actual learnings itself, but about that, those safe spaces. Yeah. yeah, I understand before this role, you were involved in um, the, the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence. Yeah. And they have a program around um, digital indi or Indigenous yes, digital yeah. excellence. I just wanted to read out the premise of IDX. So what happens when digital technology is embraced by the world's oldest living culture? We believe the answer is indigenous digital excellence. Australia's first peoples are world leaders in embedding our wisdom and knowledge into digital technology to improve the well-being of all humanity. <laughs> and that's, it's, yeah, it's, um, I was, are the, are they, so in that role, I understand you went around remote communities sort of uh, introducing digital technology? Yeah, so we were taking out, um, we were doing drones, coding, uh, robotics, and we were also doing 3D printing. We were taking out all this technology with us into um, remote communities and doing capability building workshops with, with the community and with the young people in the schools. Um, and then once we left, they got $10,000 worth of their own equipment um, to continue on with creating their own programs uh, in their communities and yeah it was really really well received um, and it was fun <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know those kids taught me more a lot about the tech <laughs> yeah I was like okay <laughs> deadly <laughs> Celeste can I can I maybe uh, ask a question just I mean I know a lot of your programming is focused around the younger generation but there was some research at Melbourne University looking at the role of museums and galleries around Victoria. And again, I mean, if you look at things like the de decline of some traditional Western religions, um, you know, the gathering congregation of a Sunday is now shifted to the museum world. Um, so there's big generational shifts in terms of user groups now in museums. Have you got any insight and thoughts on that? From a, I mean, I know the powerhouse is going through a massive amount of change, but you know, do you think we're designing the most appropriate museums and galleries for a future generation as well? Um, yes, because we also have to look at um, post-treaty and post-reconciliation and, and what and that user experience when you're entering into those cultural institutions and, and those government institutions as well. Um, you know, and are they interactive and are they providing a safe space? And, you know, we t when I talk about safe spaces, um, I don't mean just physically. You know, I mean emotionally and, and mentally. And is this a place where people can come in and feel welcome? 
um, you know, and be and be who they want to be. Um, yeah, because a lot, a lot of those times, those types of experience can can be high anxiety or, um, you know, places where people don't necessarily um, feel they belong. Um, so it's really important that those types of institutions are, are considering what the future, and especially people who are who are disadvantaged and underrepresented. You know. That they feel included. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's super important. Have Have you? Because um, I attended some of Jifa Greenaway's "Go Back to Where You Come From" symposium earlier in the year, which was based around um, First Nations um, architectural design. Do you have a similar sort of digital uh, correspondence with other? Um, First Nations peoples from around the world, or, or are there projects happening around the world that? Um, um, uh, typically, I mean, it's Indigenous peoples across the globe are, are, are very diverse peoples, and I can't speak on behalf of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia, but um, just from my experiences, I think, I think that um, there's a lot, especially with the project I'm working on now, it's all about data and us having control of our own data um, and being able to collect it and distribute it ourselves. And, you know, whatever that, whatever that data looks like, it, it could look like a, a whole bunch of things. But it's it's important that First Nations people, whatever space they're in, have uh, are involved from the get-go and um, not just an afterthought or board in front at, at the very end because um, people are trying to tick some boxes. Um, and have ownership of that data. Yes, That's yes, important. yes. They have control of, of their space and 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 what they want in it. How it, you know, it's for me, it's common sense, but <laughs> it's not. That doesn't always translate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that goes back to Jax's point actually about common yeah. sense. A lot of a lot of these issues about the it's grand staircase is yeah. not that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 and that's what there's. A, there's even some things that you know, it, even I take for granted sometimes, or I don't even, I don't think about things. You know, that's why your talk just before it was like, well, you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's even just just um, standing back and just reflecting, and just understanding, you know, your your own privilege, I guess, and um, how to support. And um, you're an advocate for women in STEM as well. 100%. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Is that something that you integrate into your current role or do you, is there, are there other... I have to integrate it into my current role because yeah. I can't go into the future in the STEM space and take working with predominantly male, you know, men. I can't do it. I cannot do it. I love my, I love my brothers though, you know, love them. But sometimes you just need, and that's the other thing, and a lot of, in my culture we have this men's and women's business. We have spaces for men and spaces for women. Um, you know, and it's, and it's really important that, that we have that time with our sisters and the brothers have their time with their brothers um, because, because there's different types of conversations and, and, and reflections that come out of that time. So, and, and it's also not just, for, not just culturally, but that's for your mental health. Uh, making sure that you're you're feeling safe and you're healthy mentally, so it's yeah, it's more than just um, ticking some boxes and yeah, yeah. So um, we are about to make another change, but you'll you'll start to notice a pattern because before Jane disappears, Jack's just handed over the planning minister's role to Jane. So <laughs> before you depart, Jane, what would what would be the big policy shift? No, this isn't prepared, so everyone's having been put in the spot. A big policy shift. Um, well, I think it's... I don't know. I think it's just looking at... Um, we're inevitably dealing with this huge population growth and maybe just trying to work out really quickly how to um, efficiently work around the resources that we've got um, in a way that's going to give everyone universal access. I think, um, yeah, maybe I'd step down from the role and <laughs> let let some community groups take over. That would be good. All right. <laughs> Dissolve the planning Dissolve. department, yeah. <laughs> or merge them. 
Okay, well, thanks very much, Jane. Please join me in, in thanking Jane. Thank you. So we're now going to invite um, two people to the panel. So Michael Kamaris and Mark Smith are both artists. And um, we're going to ask you to join the panel. Okay, Celeste, so the stage is yours. <laughs> okay. Um, hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> um, do you just want to tell us a bit about yourselves and, and, your, and your art, your discipline? Uh, yeah, I'm just from Arts Project Australia, which is a, um, um, a studio space for people with intellectual disabilities um, located in uh, Northcote. And, um, yeah, they're all about... Um, just, they've got a... A, a, a studio space and a gallery space and they're all about um, you know in inclusion and promoting and advocating for people um, yeah and um, it's yeah it's a, it's a space where you, feel, you you can feel comfortable about doing doing your work and yeah for, for me person you know for me person personally um, yeah I had a um, I had a, a, a troubled Birth, you know, lack of oxygen at birth, and which which resulted in uh, short-term memory, uh, low muscle tone, um, anxiety, depression. Um, you know, so I just I never really felt it hard hard to fit in during my you know during school and stuff. So that was quite stressful and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's a yeah place where I feel comfortable. You know, and I've been there since. Uh, 20, 2010. Yeah. Oh, deadly. Um, do you want to yarn us about yourself? Um, this is going to be difficult for me because I can't hold it very well. Um, you can hold, yeah, that's right. Thank you, Heath Michael. Um, I've been, I'm an artist. I've been going to Arts Project in Northcote for about uh, since 2003. Um, I had a car accident in 2000. Uh, sorry. 1995, I was in a wheelchair for one year and a half. I was in a coma for one to four, four days. Um, I was told by a neurologist I would never walk again. It sort of gave me even more determination. I'll show you kind of thing. Um, um, the the arts project is a place for intellectually disabled people. Um, uh, it's developed heaps over the last, say, 10 years, um, or since I've been young there in 2003. Um, uh, I, I think I should ask, what else do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, incidentally, yeah, it, it's Arts Project uh, Australia has been around for, for uh, just over 40 years yeah. now, so, yeah, it's, it was well, it's well ahead of its time. When it when it started in, in the um, in the about the mid mid seventies, yeah. Do you do a lot of work um, with large spaces? In large spaces. Yeah, in large spaces. Uh, it's tends to be in. It's tends to be um, smallish uh, works. Um, the studios, the uh, gallery space is not not massive. Yeah. So most people are working um, kind of small scale. Paintings, drawing, drawing, sculpture, prints, yeah. Um. Um, yeah, it's uh, sort of um, individual practices. Um, uh, not so much, not so much, not so much on big works. More individual, individual way to express their way of their life. Um, um, yeah. And yeah, the um, the Im the important thing is it's not um, that the philo the philosophy of Arts Project is is not it's not um, it's not art therapy. Yeah, right. It's it's um, it, it's a place of an inclusion and a place where people can um, just practice their art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, how do you think uh, how do you think art contributes to safe spaces or or providing that safe space? Um. And how, how how does it influence you in your in your process well, when you create it's, art? It's it's kind of funny in some ways that um, my disability kind of informs my art because I'm I can't be a, an, an accurate accurate um, person you know with work because of my low muscle tone. 
So it gives me my distinctive style. So it's kind of a, a kind of catch-22 kind of, um, it's, well, it's, it, yeah, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's, there's some benefit, benefits have come out of being disabled because um, it gives me my own kind of voice and style. And I find that with a lot of the other artists, you know, that they're, they're not trying to be, um, to be, to, to do everything true to life and, you know, they're doing it in their particular style. So there's real particular styles in in, in all the artists. They, everyone has a real distinctive style and voice. Um. Um, being, an art, being an artist, I can't explain it in better words, but it allows you to, to go through your problems, express your life difficulties through, through your artwork. Um, uh, yeah, I'll say that. Celeste, one of the things I think is would be maybe interesting to consider is, again, getting back to this whole pressure on the city and the change that's happening. Um, it brings with it, I think, some pressures on some of these arts organisations in terms of where they're physically located. And um, we've been doing some work with Footscray Art Centre recently, and you look at Footscray as a place, mm. and the gentrification that's happening in and around it, and the loss of some of that original um, indigenous community mm. who were part of the founding of that art centre. Yeah, yeah. So there's these great social pressures coming, um, and uh, and the displacement that might have. I mean, it might push some of these organisations to rethink the location, yeah. push them further out of the city, and then you've got issues again of accessibility. You know. Thank you. Um, uh, <coughs> arts practice used to be on um, High Street Road, just up, just a couple meters up, a couple hundred meters up road, up the road. But um, now it's moved down to a big studio area where it's above above a gallery. Um, but still, there's a problem of um, most people go catch most people go they get taxis. Um, try, and it's a one-way, like the side street, but it's a one one-way place. And um, there's, if I want, if I want to be, so if I've got an appointment somewhere, um, I have to, I have to like order a taxi earlier because um, there's just not enough room for everyone to to unload from the studio to go home. There's not enough car spaces or um, you know, to get picked up by a taxi. It's pretty difficult. Yeah. And I think that's around that, that user experience and not just when people get to a, a place but from when they leave their home and then have to, and then go back. I think that's a, that's a whole experience that um, people don't think about. Um, but how do you how do you hope people interact with your with your art? In the, in, in, in when it's when you're providing a safe space or when it's in an exhibit. Yeah, I, I just hope they emotionally engage with it, and they, they, they you know, if they they get the messages, you know, there's sometimes there's sometimes messages there, mm. you know, but it's it, it's not it's not it's not about being disabled, mm. the work. It's well, some it, might, um, it tends not to be. It's just just uh, it's, it's just expressing something that I'm passionate about, the various issues. You know, like the environment and, st and things like that. You know, and climate change and um, yeah, just the yeah, just the <laughs> kind of cr craziness of the world, <laughs> absurdity of it, everything. I, um, I just thought of something. Um, the group of us at the Arts Project are trying to trying to trying to change, trying to make the word disability. Um, like when when the word disability is used, do we use the word disability? I'm like, everyone's different in their own way, so diff everyone's got an ability, so everyone's different got a different ability. Um, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's the word that we've kind of claimed as we're part of a, a, a group of about seven artists um, called um, um, the Northcote Penguins. Um, um, so, um, who we meet on Wednesdays, and um, 
yeah, we kind of we claim, claim the word, uh, claim that word. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just putting a positive um, take on it because the word dis disability seems some, you know, has kind of negative connotations. And, you know, why should we, it should be, we should be seen, I think, you know, in a positive light. What, what, what positive things can we, can, can people do, do yeah, you know? Yeah, 100%. Would you want to add something? Yeah. So, I just come back to the name. Is that a take on the, um, the angry penguins? Uh, yeah, yeah, I came, yeah. I came up with that. I'm a, yeah, I live not too far away from um, Heidi, so ah, I'm right. well aware of the angry penguins. So yeah. I came up with the Northcote penguins yeah. and designed uh, T-shirts to go along with it. Right. Um, now, so we're at that point where we're just about to hand over again, but um, Celeste, so you've had time, you've had time to think, <laughs> possibly. So Jane's just throwing you the baton of planning minister. What are we doing? I don't want it. <laughs> That's too much pressure. I don't want it. Um, I just say have more, have more mob, have more First Nations mob mm. involved from the beginning. Yeah. Always, always have them in the forefront, yeah. um, and in those processes when you're making decisions for communities, yeah. especially Indigenous communities. Yeah. All right. Well, please join me in thanking Celeste. Now, we're going to keep Michael and Mark, um, and uh, we're going to invite um, Rose Redstone, um, who used to be, um, who's a retired nurse. So, welcome, Rose. There he is. Hi. There you go. Hello. Hi. 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 Um, I think I'll just start off by saying, um, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I'm um, a long ago a retired nurse. I'm actually retired altogether now because I'm quite old, but um, very busy. And we've had a wonderful life living in Australia. Came from Aust um, from England, and um, I'm very interested in this subject because, and I didn't actually know what ableism meant because it sounded like a non-word to me. Um, I'm because we lived in Africa we saw a lot of ableism there because they haven't got the resources to look after people who are ill, they're frightened of them. Um, then we went to Ethiopia and we saw what happened to the women who had um, um, uh, um, problems after they'd had their babies and they were rejected. And, and that was true ableism and there were some wonderful doctors there dealing with that. So I hadn't realised what I was looking at until I was asked to do this. And so um, I've been thinking about it when I've been listening to everybody. Um, I thought about Dondale, the um, prison up in Darwin, um, the rejection of those young people and their mental illness and the terrible way things have worked out there, ableism. Um, mentally ill, high anxiety. Um, uh, I think organised religion has taken away our understanding of the customs of people. Um, maybe Celeste would be um, aware of this, that we don't really understand other people. Um, and I think Jane said, uh, we're othered, we, things are brought on by boring old white men. I think you said that. <laughs> um, we are temporarily able-bodied. And because I'm 76, I know that. Um, and I wonder, you know, how's it going to affect me? I'm really thrilled at the new platforms for the trams because it's so easy. Try getting a grandchild off those trams <laughs> with a pushchair. I just wish the, tra the tram driver would allow you a bit, a bit more time to uh, get off the tram because quite often, because I have balance issues t too when the tram's moving, and it's you have to make your way to the door before the tram stops to get off in time. And it's the same with um, it's the same with crossings. You know, you start you, you start to cross and you can't always finish. 
No, you, you have know, to be an and Olympic. And it's not just dis disabled people, but it's the elder elderly as well. Getting across the road coming here today, I said to my husband, you have to be an Olympic runner. <laughs> Look, I'm talking so much, you were meant to be asking me. Sorry, I'll shut up. <laughs> I think, I think um, it's important to... Um, have these conversations. I don't mean to be rude, but um, you know, 76. Yes. Um, I consider a bit a lot younger, and I think it's important because what Jack said, it's a, it's an aging population. If we have like um, more discussions with the, with with old, more old, more older people, um, only good can come out of that. Yeah. Yes, I I think so. Um, we've sort of planned a bit. We had a little farm. We've sold it, but um, I think in Melbourne, I'm surprised there aren't more people living in apartments because um, they're so convenient. You know, we we now have an apartment around the corner, and I don't know what you think. Do you live in a house or an apartment? I live in an apartment um, because there's no. I've got no. It's hard for me to look after a yard and so so I um. And family is very suitable, yeah. And you've got a lift? Yes, a lift, yep, yep. Um, and, but uh, on the second day I was there, the lifts are broken, I had to go upstairs. <laughs> and I had, to, um, I had to make sure I was down early for a taxi, otherwise, you know, I'd miss taxi, yes. issues like that, yeah. I was listening to Celeste saying about how important it is to feel safe. And of course, it doesn't make you feel safe when you can't get in the car or can't reach. And I actually do art in Fitzroy, but it's quite hard for me to get up all the stairs in that that um, um, studio. Do you want to ask me anything else? <laughs> and you just just with someone I've got uh, kind of high functioning autism, and I find that just the the city is just so noisy and, uh, you know, just you feel this people don't, people kind of looking at their phones, not looking where they're going, walking on the wrong side of the footpath, with, which kind of annoys me. Um, you're constantly having to get out of the way and duck and weave. It's just very anxiety provoking and maybe something that the, uh, the city of Melbourne could look at is, yeah, some, some more kind of quiet areas, more parks. Um, where, where, where would you see as a place of retreat just now in the city, away from that noise? Where, where well, what kind of what kind of spaces or buildings do you see currently as a place you would retreat to? Is well, here you know here's a lovely place, yeah. the botanical gardens as well. Yeah, um, yeah um, the galleries, and that, that's another thing with the, with the art with places like art galleries. I find they don't tend to do very particularly good. Um, Talking to you over there, <laughs> uh, um, with seating. This, yeah. and my mum, my mum has the same issue. I mean, she, you know, she's got uh, getting a, uh, arthritis. Um, and when there's a, you know, most people spend an hour and a half or something at a, ex, you know, blockbuster ex exhibition, and there's just no, um, there's just no, not enough seating. Um, so it gets extremely tiring. I agree, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. Jane, I, I wouldn't mind asking the question about, um, someone mentioned early on, I don't know who it was, about the proliferation of stainless steel in our cities. Oh yes, I've put that on because my I've, list. Because I, I had experience, when I was teaching in the UK, one of our students who was studying architecture lost his sight in his third year of architecture school. And he moved on to a PhD looking at um, accessibility and mapping cities. And one of the things that was fascinating that came out of that was just about stainless steel and the problems in terms of visual impairment, but also for, arth for arthritis. It's one of the worst materials in terms of the shooting pain that you would get from um, the cold that comes from it, yet we see it constantly. Um, and I think also, I think somebody said that, I mean, it's so institutional. Yeah. To having a, a stainless steel pan with no lid on it and um, a stainless steel handle to hold on to, mm. um, you feel as though you're in some sort of cage. I'm, 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 I must admit, I do sometimes slip into the disabled. They call it disabled. I always think, think of a disabled Lou. You could paint it, really, couldn't you? 
That's I think that's why the word difficulty comes into it. Yeah. Disability. Differability. Differability. Different. Different. Differability. So you think that stainless steel is a harsh mm. material? Mm. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying it's just the appropriate. It becomes the default. It's usually to do with utility and ease of cleaning and maintenance. And it's like giving up all those bone-handled knives we yeah, have for a wedding yeah, present yeah. so they don't go in the dishwasher. Yeah. <laughs> we'll probably talk... I mean, Tanya's coming on the panel later, but we, um, we'll, so we'll maybe save the Federation Square discussion. Um, <laughs> um, but we, we noticed, I mean, about a year ago, suddenly Federation Square was covered in stainless steel handrails. Um, and grab rails, but and it caused quite a quite a bit of a debate about its appropriateness. And also, they're mm. very hot in mm. the summer. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes. So we're um, we're about to hand the baton over again. Um, so I don't know, Michael or Mark, does someone want to take the the reign of the planning minister and, and declare what the, the the most important policy matter is? Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to see uh, you know um, pos positions in in. In you know, states, federal, state, local, council, um, just where kind of be more open to having people uh, with with uh, you know from all walks of life to be kind of invited and welcomed to um, to you know sh share their ideas and um, about you know how they want want want, want to live in this world. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, please join me in thanking Michael and Mark. You were listening to M Relay's Aging, Ableism and Architecture Talk. Do stick around for part two.